What does it mean to be a hero? That's a bloody good question. G'day, I'm Bernie Shakeshaft. I'm the 2020 Australian Local Hero of the Year. But it's that word, hero. Oh boy, they're big boots to fill. And today, we're talking with another everyday hero to find out just what it takes. Everyday heroes stamp their boots on the ground. Imagine walking into a room. If you do well in this room, you get across to the other side. You get a promotion. You get more opportunities. You move up in the world. Then, if you go to another room and you have to do the same year in, year out, and all the while you're building for the future, for a successful life. But it's not easy because each room has its cracks in it and not everyone will make it to the other side. Some fall through the cracks and those that do, well, some find their feet again, but some just keep falling. And when they land, there can be a lot of pain. These rooms are called classrooms. Yeah, the ones in schools. We've all been there. As we know at Backtrack, not every kid is suited to be in one. My guest today recognised that more than 20 years ago. Russell Kerr, a high school teacher from Melbourne who established the internationally acclaimed hands-on learning program. Um, Russell, look, rarely in my travels um, do I walk into a school and seriously um, sit up and pay attention. Uh, paying attention at school for me wasn't one of my finer attributes. A couple of years ago, though, uh, I seriously sat up and paid attention. Uh, I saw an alternative program going, running bang smack in the middle of a, a public school. It was a hands-on learning classroom. And when I looked at it, I went, boy, this is just a backtrack program but still in school, so catching those kids before it's too late, I guess. Tell us about um, hands-on learning, and I'm particularly interested in where the name came from. Hands-on learning, where did the name come from? One day I took a group of kids up to Warburton, and they were year 10 kids at Frankston where I was teaching in the late 90s, and these kids, we'd been doing everything to try to get them engaged. I was teaching them English and a few other things with a mate. We were doing team teaching, mm-hmm. but nothing seemed to get to these kids. They were just still disinterested, except, you know, in school and turned off. And they'd been in all sorts of excursions and things. People had tried, you know, doing everything to get them engaged. I'd certainly been doing my level best, mm-hmm. but we weren't working. They were already switched off. I took him one day up to a friend who's got a property up at Warburton. He, he said, an old friend of mine, he worked with my dad making furniture and he now made, was making stick furniture. Okay. And we took 10 or 15 kids up on the bus uh, up to Warburton, which is out in the country, out in the sticks, and we went into the forest with Frank, his name was Frank, remember? Yep. And uh, we, he showed us how to pick the right sort of sticks. We sat down in the backyard outside uh, in his backyard that day and and made stick furniture with those kids. And those kids just seemed to get really engaged in the the doing and they said to me after that day, that's the best thing that we've ever done. And the penny really dropped for me that the way of engagement with these kids was actually in the doing. They Mm -hmm. kind of really relaxed and, 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 and enjoyed it and found it fulfilling and, and really, uh, really got connected. So it was the sort of uh, experience of that, I think, that led me to call it a hands-on learning or want to talk about it as a, a hands-on way of... Take us back. Um, school for you, what, what was that like? Were you a, a straight-A student or 
Yeah, no, school for me wasn't a really. It did. It, I didn't. Don't think I ever really got switched on to school. I can remember in year eight, the year eight teacher uh, calling me out for daydreaming, and he decided to get one of the kids to bring in a pig pronger. Or he might have been brought in a pig pronger. The kid had to sit behind me with a pig pronger and hit me in the butt every time I was drifting off. He also, on another occasion, got a kid with the most pointy-toed shoes to sit behind me and give me a kick in the butt to wake me up and bring me back to reality. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't really uh, connecting with with school. I got through school okay and I applied myself and I ended up finishing year 12, but it wasn't something that that had really grabbed me. Do you remember um, what you were dreaming about? Uh, No, I don't really, Bernie. I think I was just a bit disconnected with myself. Um, I I didn't at that stage have any idea, probably just looking out the window and what was going on that was more interesting. I was more interested in sport, got got engaged in sport, athletics, footy and tennis and things like that, but um, I wasn't a great student. So fill in some gaps for me here, Russell. Uh, You weren't a great student. I needed a pig pronger to keep you on task. Uh, how do you end up being a teacher? What age did you kind of go, boy, this is what I'm going to do then? That, that is pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the last thing I would have ever thought of doing. My dad had a furniture business and I was always drawing and sketching houses and things. I think I wanted to do something in the line. I like practical things. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going, getting into uni and going to uni and studying sociology and politics and philosophy and something really lit up for me. Then learning started to become a, a, you know, I got more interested in it. It was more a sort of engaging sort of learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, alongside of that, I was working with a, a mate, a, an older guy who'd come as a youth worker in, when I was about 16 into a church youth group where I went along to. And he'd, he'd had quite a major impact and he was trying to sort of work with these kids and we've set up, you know, quite a big youth group. Um, and then I'd sort of, instead of going into the, into the furniture business, I sort of thought I was working with some of these kids who came from a pretty difficult area in West Heidelberg mm-hmm. and uh, thought, gee, these kids, they're all at school. I, I, I could do more if I was actually working with these kids in a school context. So I left my father's furniture business, which I was working in at the time, and um, finished off my degree and then did a teaching degree and went teaching to work with these kids. But it would have been the last thing that I would have thought of doing. So it was more with with a, a, a desire to sort of help these kids or work with these kids that I knew weren't really having a great life. And school certainly wasn't. I could identify with why they didn't enjoy school. Do you think um, there was a bit of a life lesson in there like we're always putting pressure on kids about what are you going to do when you finish school you know who are you going to be what course are you, what job uh you just sounded like meandered with some kind of purpose and landed up in something that you end up yeah it's interesting isn't it it's not like an intellectual decision is it i just would never have put my finger on that's what i'd do in fact i would have said that would be the thing i'd hate when i started doing that and i was only about 22 at the time just married had a my first kid, and uh, just totally loved it, and probably threw myself into it, and not you know with an obsessive, obsessive amount of energy, because I really did understand where these kids were coming from. These kids at McLeod Tech used to talk about it as the prison camp. They they hated it with a vengeance, and 
in those days that it was a tech school and mm. they were they were tiered. So I ended up being given when I, I went and door knocked on the school for a job and the principal took me with open arms and the school said, what, you want to come and work? <laughs> and uh, they were short of teachers in those days and I taught humanities and sociology, social studies and that sort of stuff. But he gave me all of the rat bag kids down the end of the line. I think they were, it started off, A, were the best kids and I was taking uh, 9K, which was the kids right at the end of the line. Mm-hmm. And he said these these kids were pretty non-switched on and academic at school. So I, he gave them for nearly about 20 hours a week. I had them, every, you know, long periods of time. And, uh, you know, that that's sort of what transpired. I just got really sort of connected into into that. But I would no, I've never thought of doing it. And I think, you know, it's an interesting learning lesson, isn't it, Bernie, that you, you don't really know if you just follow your nose and follow mm-hmm. your who you are, you, you discover what you Where you're going to land somewhere. Um, <clears throat> so tell me about these kids, this um, bunch of kids at McLeod, was it? McLeod Tech? Yeah, McLeod Tech. It was on the old, uh, in, in, the, in the Olympic Village, where mm-hmm. the 1956 okay. Olympics have been. The government, in their wisdom, had put all the unmarried mothers down there into the housing commission area, and a lot of these kids and uh, you know were, were quite troubled, often broken families, single parents, and they were ending up not at the high school but at the tech school. So it was a sort of where kids had to go to school and, it, you know, it was a good school and the principal was trying to do the best for them and in their wisdom they streamed these kids so that most disinterested kids were all sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> cuddled out of the better classes and dumped into the, the bottom stream. So here I was with these kids and I had to sort of, I was really, really responded to the challenge for how to engage these kids. So I, I had a book that was written about a, called A Bunch of Rat Bags, which was about kids that were brought up in Footscray in a really rough suburb. It was something that uh, they really loved. They identified with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just tried to do practical things. I had an old portable I was given, so I said to the kids, right, oh, you can make it your own. So they got together and we, we got painted and they painted it all bright purple and green and blue and every other colour. Um, and I just tried to connect with them through communicating and, and breaking things down at a level they could understand. We did a lot of practical things. I went out and got an old truck. We went gardening. We got old cars. Uh, we made oak boots. We made, uh, you know, we just, I just was all, all the time thinking, what can I do? How to connect with these kids and, and make this, you know, get them connected to school and did you try to build a relationship with them. You didn't need a pig prom? No. Well, I was guessing. And <laughs> um, how did you get around this system? I mean, what were you supposed to be teaching the kids to read and write? You said humanities and all sorts of things, but you went straight into hands-on stuff. What what took you down that path? Well, I guess these, these kids had such a disinterest in learning. I mean, I would have done work with them, academic mm-hmm. work, um, you know, English and social studies. I would have had them for English social studies. And I would have read them books and stories and got them writing and stuff, but their skills were pretty low. And, you know, so as an incentive, I probably brought in practical things that broke up the day. We we'd, we were right next to an oval. We went out and played a lot of sport, footy, and my wife's just chipping in the back here. Yes, I, I was known many years later, one of my sons was getting a radio fitted to his car and uh, this kid said to him, hey, your name's Kurt. Your dad wouldn't have taught me at McLeod Tech back in 1972. And Luke said, yeah. He said, why? He said, oh, 
he used to he used to teach us about Cat Stevens. And that's the sort of stuff that I, I would do, you know, try to relate to English or poetry through something. And I remember bringing the kids home to my place and we'd have pizzas and sit down and listen to Cat Stevens and just trying to build rapport, relationship, connection with these sort of kids. They were they were kids. I mean, at McLeod in those days, it was funny, Bernie, I got out an old essay that I wrote because I did my university degree in, in, in education at the same time as teaching there. Okay. And uh, I wrote this one about the Basher rise uh, was frightening in the area. And they were known as the, uh, the what were they called, the Rosanna Rat Pack, this gang. And a lot of the kids that I taught were in this gang. Okay. And uh, the government, in this report, I write about how the government's saying they're not doing enough at school to provide, to get preventative measures going in the curriculum. Isn't that funny? Here's that. In 72, I'm writing an essay about that because of reports that are in the paper at the time. Schools aren't doing enough. And they mm-hmm. knew that they were boys. They were often kids that weren't succeeding in their education. They were dropping out of school. And they were really creating quite a frightening problem in, in the society. And, you know, I, I go into quite a bit of detail because I interviewed a lot of these kids, but these kids had a dads that beat up on them and, and, and they didn't find acceptance and success at home. They weren't finding success and acceptance at school. And then for all of that, what did the school go and do? Kick them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead of rising to the challenge and finding a way to engage these kids and try to connect with them. The schools would take the easy, easy route and just say, well, it's time to go. It was funny, one of those kids I'd spent quite a lot of time with after probably the first year, um, a kid called Morris. Uh, I even was doing ridiculous things, but I think back of it. But Joan and I let him and another kid called Doffer come up and babysit our kids. And wow. we went out one night and I left the two. We went out in one car. I had another HR Holden there in the garage. When we came home, the driveway looked a little bit bumpy. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, ho-ho. And then I discovered egg whites all over the car and they'd gone out for a spin, right. put the kids to bed and gone out for a spin in the, in the Holden at 14, 15. Well, at least they didn't take the kids with them. No, when we got back, they were doing the ironing. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, there was a funny thing because that kid Morris in the beginning of year 10, he got expelled because he had an altercation with the woodwork teacher who thumped him with a bit of 4B2 (laughs) and Morris didn't take to that too kindly. And I kind of stuck up for him because I read all this stuff, I understood these kids and I was trying to help them and connect them and keep them at school because getting rid of them wasn't going to be any solution. Anyway, I didn't win. Uh, Morris kicked out of school. I didn't hear anything about that kid till about okay. he, he had read something about hands-on learning in the paper and he wrote me a letter and said, are you the same teacher that taught me at McLeod Tech back in 1970? <laughs> and hopefully you wrote back to him and said, are you the same kid that uh, took my HR out while you were supposed to be babysitting? Yeah, 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 well, he, he was. So we had some funny exchanges because lots of funny things. There were lots of humorous things that happened in, in, over these few years that I taught about McLeod Tech. And uh, he said, well, you know what, uh, Mr Kerr, I want to come down and, and buy you lunch down in Frankston. I want to tell you my story. And he came down and bought me lunch at the pub at Frankston. And he said, I'm a multimillionaire now. I fly around on the pointy end of aeroplanes I've been a real success designing and making 
engineering presses that press all the all the steel fittings that are alike mm-hmm. in in the centre of Melbourne on all the biggest buildings. And I'm a world leading expert. Over and over, <laughs> he said. I tell everybody. I kept a belief in myself that I'm not a bad person because I had one teacher that believed in me, that trusted me, and uh, I've hung on to that belief all my life. And I thought to myself, wow, you wouldn't know that you'd had that sort of impact doing something and expressing that sort of belief and trust in someone that that had had such an impact on his life. There's a story about a kid finding his path and uh, he's made good, you know. Tell me over all those years, because we see the same stuff, you know, with the kids that we work with, if you give them the right opportunities, if you create this sense of belonging, if you keep them learning, it doesn't matter what, not put too much pressure on about, uh, I guess, things to me that, that don't matter. So you, you're seeing this stuff years and years ago as an educator. What was that feeling uh, when the kid gets kicked out of school? What does that do to you as a young teacher? I was pretty on my own there. Um, teachers, you know, at, at that stage, that you know, they they probably stick together a bit. So, I, but it it made me more determined. I I sort of really believed what was what was missing. You know, was the fact that school just wasn't doing enough to really support these kids and make it interesting and viable for them. So I'd, I'd sort of worked after that. I worked really hard, produced, get all the teachers working together in year nine. We formed up a program where we brought in all sorts of people. I wrote a, another essay I found in my filing cabinet. You stimulated me to get out my old filing cabinet. But uh, we, I wrote another essay about these kids. One of these kids was, was actually uh, be- became a pretty f- famous one of the gangland murderers in Melbourne and has consequently now lost his life. And these guys were pretty wild. They were pretty on the edge. But we needed to do something for these kids. So we I, we devised a program where we brought people in to speak. We brought in the police. We brought in welfare workers. We brought in social work. We brought in people that could try and communicate to these kids about life. And and this was for all of the year, all the year nine kids, about 300 kids. And on the alternate weeks, we took them out to do things in the community. We went to um, old people's homes. We went and did gardening for people. So it was interesting reflecting back on this, Bernie, because obviously <laughs> I had an instinct to do this sort of stuff right back then, way back. Uh, yeah, I just it, 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 it inspired me to, to want to do more, to help and support these kids and find ways to do it. And we got a collaborative thing going. We got money from the government way back then, and I had 12 mm-hmm. teachers. We took them on camps. I took kids on a bike ride up to Lake Epilock on tandem bikes that I got given and we, the kids put them together. So I was, I was, there were all sorts of ways I was looking for to find, to connect and engage and, and give these kids something real. That was sort of the motive, I think, what, what prompted me just seeing these kids getting shoved off, shunted off. It sounds like you're a bit of a lone soldier there. Uh, smells of an everyday hero to me. Uh, certainly for some of those kids, you, you must be. Um, if you look at what's going on now in education and what was going on when you were a, a young teacher, surely we've got it got it better going. Or what what have you seen over the years? Have we got it sorted out yet? Well, I don't. I think we've got it with hands-on learning currently today. We've got some fantastic principals, some fantastic schools, and a and a bunch of people who are working really well to make this work. But we haven't got a systemic change. Mm-hmm. So the, the principals and the, the, the pick up hands-on learning and make this operative within the schools, 
they're really going out on a on an edge on a ledge, putting extra money into this to to make hands-on learning possible to help these kids. But they're not really being encouraged or getting a great deal of, of systemic incentive. They're having to find money in their own budgets. It's a tough sort of gig for them. I think we've we really still haven't seen the systemic change. I don't think in society we really have have understood the problem. Mm-hmm. Or understood what we can do positive, more proactively and positively within school, and it's and it's increasing. Like the figures are now, I would say, uh, on a on a bat, on a downward trend. We've got something like about forty. They reckon about forty percent of kids are disengaging in the school process. In other words, not benefiting from it fully. Mm-hmm. They reckon there's about twenty five percent of the kids that should be finishing school that are leaving are not finishing school. So we've got a, 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 a pretty high cohort of kids that school isn't really getting to them. What we're doing at school, what we're providing for them isn't really meeting their needs. I think there was a report the Dusseldorf Foundation put out in 2014 where they estimated one in five kids of high school age, so under the age of 17, uh, don't go to school they don't do any kind of training and they certainly don't have a job. You're talking about 40% of kids not finishing school. <coughs> 40% not engaging. In, not engaging. It's 25% that don't, that don't, don't finish. finish altogether. And probably you're right, you're 15% of the kids that just really aren't getting anything, any benefit at all. So we're not talking about... Uh, we're not talking about 1% or 2% of the population now. We're starting to talk about a quarter of the kids in a first world country, they're big numbers. Uh, why is it when there are programs like hands-on learning, and, and I know Backtrack has been highly successful in getting kids into employment uh, that nobody else would touch, why is it if we've got these answers that we can't integrate these things into our mainstream systems? Yeah, I think uh, we've, it's probably a bit of a bureaucratic problem. I, I think that in, in, our, in our society, education seen as... Uh, you know, numeracy and literacy. The people that I went to see that I tried to engage with in government and at a bureaucratic level would always bounce back with me that what's this got to do with education? It was like this really wasn't part of the numeracy and literacy. Um, why, you know, we're not supposed to do what, this, this is what should happen for kids in homes. So they mm-hmm. wanted kids to sort of be all the same, like on a level playing field. And I don't think we've really accepted the, the equation that, these kids in our society, when there isn't a level playing field, and some kids need a lot more support to help them to be engaged. They were disconnected. You know, if I look back in them, in, in, in that would be the, I think the key thing that's never changed. I, it was there in 1972 in that mm. report that I read out to you before. Uh, they were coming to the same conclusions. This is where kids are. We need to be doing more to connect with these kids and, and get them uh, not not having them just drip drop out of school because that's creating a lot of social problems. But really, we haven't invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, I was just reading another thing I wrote back in 2015. Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Minister, mm-hmm. uh, said we need to identify. Um, says we need to identify those who become isolated in their early years of schooling because we're not intervening effectively to meet these needs and these problems fester. 
He says we need to attack this at the grassroots level and provide educational pathways. And that's really that we're not going in there proactive, dealing with the issues of the grassroots reasons why kids are disengaging. And when I originally won the money that we got from uh, um, AMP Youth Boost in, in 2004, they set up a million dollars and, and set up a, uh, a competition for people to apply to who was going to, what, what could really deal with the root grassroots problem of disengagement. And we were the only school program that won that. Day. And out of that whole thing, that whole million dollars, we got given $40,000. Uh, uh, it wasn't a big sum of money. It's, I had to then devise, and that was the beginning of how we started to multiply hands-on learning. I had to slow it down at the school at Frankston High School where I was and pick up three other schools and use the money to provide for someone else to help me. And Frankston, high out of their kindness, let our program drop down to two days and allowed us to do it in three other schools. And the money went to employ a guy who had been working with me at Frankston High School. But, you know, it was pretty a pretty small resource, but it was the beginning of that. But this wasn't coming from government either. This was something that the AMP was doing. So yeah. there's, there's always been, we've only survived by philanthropy from then on. It's been mm -hmm. philanthropic people who understand the problem, but... The government's never been attracted to this. They just keep on saying this isn't numeracy literacy, this isn't our main stuff. You know, we had a fantastic program in 2007, six and seven. We were invited to go to far north Queensland and work with Indigenous kids. Mm -hmm. we, we decided we, we were, they begged, and when we went up there, they begged us to do it. We worked with them for three or four years and we trained the local elders up at Bamaga. In, in hands-on learning method, they come down, we train them, and it was fantastically successful and they were keeping kids at school and the kids were loving it and thriving. And then someone came over the top of that with the idea that these kids uh, were a waste of time, we needed to they needed to focus on numeracy and literacy, and they let all those kids go and put all their money into numeracy and literacy. And, and it's been a complete failure to achieve that, that goal. It hasn't done the job of connecting those kids, it's just switch them off more. Uh, my levels of frustration just keep rising when I hear things that are working and then we pull it back. Uh, I'm interested in your, in your thoughts, Russell, on that word education because people keep coming back to literacy and numeracy, but when I listen to the things that have worked, uh, it's teaching kids to drive your HR. No. Uh, <clears throat> you're teaching kids to build furniture out of a bunch of sticks rather than hit each other with the sticks. You do progressive things. What is this word education? What the hell is education? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think it's it's got to be something that uh, is is to do with these kids learning, but it, it, it's not that it's not that numerous illiteracy aren't part of an educational ideal. It's just that you can't just uh, get kids to jump in and grab hold of this. There, there's a lot of reasons why kids need a, a proper foundation. They might not feel safe in school. They might not feel like they belong in school. They might not be able to read very well. They, they might not be able to understand the concepts. So there's a lot of stuff in an education that's built upon concept upon concept. If a lot of that's missing, you're just talking double Dutch to kids that don't get that. 
And if on top of that they've got emotional problems, I think, you know, that they're not going to be able to really take it on board anyway because they're really uh, disturbed in some way. And, and so we, I, I, I guess that was what I was really aiming at right back then was to try to provide a place, a platform, where those kids felt like they had a place where they could feel safe, where they could belong, where they could be real, where they could have a teacher that they didn't feel threatened by, where, and then we could start the learning process. It wasn't that I didn't want them to, 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 to learn to read and, and, mm. and write and know how to, you know, those things were important. It's just you can't make them a, a high-level order before you've got the, the base in place. Mm. And so in hands-on learning, uh, uh, we hear over and over again that these kids will report back to us, the day at hands-on learning makes me feel safe. I feel like I can breathe again. I feel like I've got people that trust me. I can get a little bit of success. I'm not such a dumbass after all. I can, mm. can actually do things. So that sense of feeling believed in and trusted and accepted, if you go to sort of the, the current thinking around town, you know, it, it, from people like Brené Brown, they're all talking mm-hmm. about belonging. I think we're providing a place where these kids can take their, their worries off for a day and feel like they can breathe and be accepted. And they're not just fitted in. A lot of kids would tell you that at school they just fitted in. They don't really feel mm-hmm. accepted for who they are. They just feel like they've got to conform, comply, fit in. And those kids are tailored, they don't really feel like they belong. They don't feel at ease. And I think that being at ease and breathing freely then sets a kid free, is mind free to learn, you know, and that's what our, our, our experience has been. One of those other kids in that after about nine months with me in that year in that class, he decided he was wanting to do more maths. Mm-hmm. And in the months between September, October, November, he went off and, and, and worked with the best math kids in year nine and he improved his behaviour so much. He got into the very top maths group, into the 4AB set the next year. Right. Not because he needed all that year to concentrate, but he was motivated to learn and, and, and he was ready to learn and, he, you know, he was in a, in a good spot. We've kind of skated around the edges of it a little bit, um... We haven't broken down this hands-on learning. Actually, what is it? I've only seen, you know, uh, one of your classrooms and actions, but if we were to walk into a school and trot down to the hands-on learning little section, what might you see? Well, look, one of the things that used to happen, Bernie, was that kids that were like this got expelled or left school, right? Mm -hmm. They were sent away. I put the proposition, no, we need to keep these kids at school. So we need to not have even special schools for these sort of kids because mm-hmm. it's already making them feel like they're different, they're not included, they're not part of it, so they have to go somewhere else. It's a yep. send-away message. Yep. So one of the basic things here is saying to a school, this is an inclusive thing. These kids belong and we have responsibility. The kid hasn't failed. The school admits we've failed. We just aren't catering for all kids. Yep. So the school then puts out the welcome mat and says, we're going to find a way to keep you connected here at school. So I put the proposition that using one day a week, the kids would just be not, not isolated. You know, often, too, kids get targeted when they're, when they're streamed mm-hmm. like those kids were way back in 72. Yeah. 
they were streamed. They all knew they were in the naughty box. Yep. They, were, they were always the bad kids. I, so I put to the school, just let these kids come out of all different grades, and we didn't stream so much in the in the 90s as we used to. Uh, just let these kids come out of uniform. We'll put this hands-on learning place in a different part of the school where they won't be so obvious. And mm-hmm. if they're just going in their ones and twos and we're making it a cross-age group, so they were year seven right through to year ten, it won't be obvious, an obvious cohort. It'll be just these kids coming in. We only want 10. I had a bit yep. of a debate with the principal. He wanted to make it 15. We, I think we settled at 12 and we've got back to 10. Because working with these sort of kids, you need to make sure that there's enough of you to take them on a journey rather than them taking you on a journey. And I knew by then you needed some really good real, you know, ratios mm-hmm. and having one teacher and another. So bringing these kids one day into a place and then it was a matter of I decided that a good thing to do was to build a hut with these kids. We built a straw bale hut at Frankston day one. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be quite magical. Again, I was it wasn't a logical thing I was following, Bernie. It was like me becoming a teacher. I was just discovering this as I went. It wasn't a sort of yep. – I didn't have a blueprint. Yeah. It was just following my gut instinct. Mm-hmm. These kids learn by doing. The good thing to be doing would be let's build this straw bale hut. There'll be lots of doing in it. We built that thing at the school. and the, the, One of the kids, Brian, said to me a couple of years after when he was in about year 10, he said, you know what, Mr Kerr, when you first said we were going to build a hut, I thought you were talking about model huts <laughs> because that's how the kids perceived of school. Um, but these kids just got such a buzz out of building a real building. It inspired them. It, 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 uh, it lit them up. It, 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 it gave them a sense of can-do. These kids would sit down at morning to, and I had them all day. So mm. we'd come for breakfast. That, I couldn't stop these kids coming early. They, these are the kids who wouldn't come, normally wouldn't come to school. They're turning up at 8 o'clock instead of, you know, quarter to nine or earlier. They wanted to hang on after. They wanted to do more stuff. They wanted to work right through their lunchtimes. These kids became passionate devils for work. And, you know, later on we had these, we built pizza ovens and we'd, we'd invite some of their teachers down and the teachers would say, what? You know, this is a different kid. These kids just became different people in that environment where they were engaged because they wanted to be, because they were doing stuff that they were successful at. Um, Russell, I've heard you say a couple of things um, before. One is, and I think you're pretty close to the mark there, is we need to treat a kid like a person. The other one that I find um, pretty straightforward uh, as a human, uh, and it seems to be piled with a whole heap of answers, is that kids do well when they're given the right space. Yeah. Um, well, it, it goes back. I think we all, every human being wants to belong, wants to feel valued. Mm-hmm. I think it just innately we all want to feel loved and valued and accepted for who we are. And if we haven't been, we're not really a, a, in a peaceful state. We're sort of looking around to try to get that, uh, all of us. And so these kids are, are sort of often getting very protracted by the time they get to high school, they're feeling quite out of their depth. It's not a place where they they really feel anybody really cares about them. They're just shunted from one class to another. There's no real mechanism for sort of expressing a, a value or giving a value to them. So 
the whole idea was, yeah, they, the kids didn't see me as a teacher, even though I was. They used mm-hmm. to give me a nickname. They used to call me a nickname. Nick, a nick <laughs> and they just, saw, they just saw me as a person. And so they, we didn't have surname bases down there in hands-on. We don't now. The kids just see us as friends. They see us as people who are on their side, people are, who are supportive of them, and that's really important. So they would, they would, and, and lots of kids would come back to Hands-On. Even when it wasn't their day, they'd come down because it was a place where they felt they belonged, they felt cared for and where they had that sense of identity and mm-hmm. acceptance. Yeah. So, look, that, that's a really important part of the platform, you know, a most important part of the platform for all of humanity and did, it's no different for kids. Did you have a person like that, a big person that you gave a nickname as a kid yourself growing up that you kind of looked up to and went, Thank God someone just lets me be who I am. I certainly didn't at school. Mm. Um, I think that guy that I talked about that came into my life in the youth group sort of thing at 15 or 16, he was quite mm. a mentor and, yeah, he, I felt very much at home with him and, and, and found an acceptance with him and a value from him, yeah. If it's, if it's such a simple thing with these kids that have fallen through the crack that we just treat them as people, we put good role models around them, but the numbers increasing, I guess it's a bit of a loaded question, but as a society, are we doing enough? You know, I, I saw this in, in the UK, Bernie, because I was teaching over there in um, the 90s. Mm-hmm. I taught at a school in Croydon, which was quite a traditional high school, which was quite successful. But education department in the UK started to get schools to try to compete um, and, and and try to up their academic standards. They tried to get these schools to compete with each other. So they started to become sync schools and high-performing schools. Mm-hmm. And the new principal that we got at the school in, in, in Croydon where I was teaching, he, um, he decided that he would start to let these kids go who were dragging his results down. And uh, I had a little little kid in the, in the class that I taught him for English and history, and he could hardly read or write. His dad was an alcoholic and he had no mum. And he, he, he was a lovely little kid and he'd just sit up the back and he'd just muck around a lot. And it used to take quite a bit of energy from me entertaining him in a normal classroom situation. But this little kid, Jimmy Good, um, I went to the principal one day and I said, John, you know, we need to do something to help these guys, not mm. just surf them out of school or let them go. And he turns around to me and said, Jimmy Good's a thug. That, unfortunately, is a very poor understanding of the problem and a, a way of a, of, of a principal duck-shoving that is, is, is responsibility. This kid was only in year eight. Mm-hmm. And he let, he let 30 kids go that year. And as a, as a result, I knew a lot of these kids. I'd been teaching there for three or four years in, in this school in London. I came home one night from London on a bus tour and it was the night of the year 11 disco and these kids that had been excluded were really angry that they were no longer able to go to the disco and be part of the social group with their mates because mm-hmm. they'd been turned out of school. There was a, a virtual 100 kids there in a riot. They were rocking police cars. They were, they were really causing quite a deal of menace. I saw that principal get beaten up in the foyer of the school by some of these angry students. I saw that principal putting up big high cyclone fences and security cameras, that sort of stuff was because he lost the plot, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and we've put so much emphasis on the, the academic performance, the level of academic performance, competition in schools, 
these these kids become you know discarded in that process because they become actually a problem to a you know mm. if, if the system's putting top down pressure for results and performance at that level it's not really about the person and the individual it's about the performance and the results unfortunately good principals and teachers and schools are really concerned about this pressure because it really stops them and they don't, and they get robbed of their time to really have the time to 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 have the the right ability to care and uh, look after kids and and care for kids individually there's a um a saying around, I around a bit there but <laughs> That's right. There's a saying uh, I stumbled across recently, and I won't get the words right, but it's something like uh, the child that's not embraced by the village will burn the village down to feel its warmth. I so I've, I've witnessed that, Bernie. I literally witnessed that in London, and it was when I came back from London to Frankston I saw the same sort of trend that I really got, you know, I want to have another crack. How can we do this? You know, and I really sort of puzzled over, like, how can we really engage these kids? What's the most effective method? It was, it was a good six or seven months I was just working at Frankston thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I was gardening one day a week and I used that day when I was gardening. I taught four days and gardened once that I, I really pondered over that question. How can we really do it? And and that's when I was looking for a solution when, when you know, we started hands-on learning. You got something that's running pretty red hot. Uh, so it started there in Frankston. How many schools is hands-on learning in now? And you're not just in Victoria anymore, are you? No, we're in 120 schools and we're in Victoria and, and Tassie and New South Wales and Queensland. We're even overseas. We've had people come to us from the UAE. We work with kids in the in the mm-hmm. Arab Emirates. Emirates. Um, just because this is a universal problem, yeah. you know. We're, and and people used to say to me, "Oh, Russell, you know, hands-on only works because of you, because you're really patient with these kids and you're really dedicated and you care about them." And I always said, "No, look, I, I really don't believe it's just about me. It's about the fact that we can do more if we get the right. There's lots of people like me, and uh, it's so gratifying now to see the fantastic team that we've got in hands-on learning." Mm-hmm. So every school that we've got, over 100 schools, represents two people in each school working. We've got a team that oversees that. We really put our time and effort and energy into making sure that these people that work in these teams have got people to relate to, that they have a day, they have time to prepare properly, that, you know, you need to make sure you're well-resourced to do this mm-hmm. well and not be under the pump. And a lot of teachers, unfortunately, are under the pump. They just don't have time. So the fact that's why coming into COVID, when, when we shut down schools, we already had this fantastic connection in our schools with these kids. They were small groups that had two mentors that they worked with, that they knew, that they trusted. And then we set up, a, a, the, the team did a fantastic job in two weeks. They got 100 documents out on, on, on a on, on work to do in, in COVID at home. They took around kits and materials to kids' homes. They would check in each day like we did. You remember when you were down there at that school, you saw the focus plans, Bernie. Mm-hmm. The yep. kids being around in a group talking about who they are and what their strengths and weaknesses are and what they need to improve. They were already in that mode. So that just continued. They'd do that online. They'd enjoy that. We've got a lot of feedback from the parents since then that that's what kept the kids connected more than anything else, that 
it connect, kept them kept them connected to school, that they could do practical things they enjoyed and, and they were connecting into that same group of kids and those two people. So I, I really believe in the power of relationships and most teachers do. It's just that the, the, the difficulty is they don't have time to, to do it. And unfortunately, we get pressured to rules and uniform and conformity. You know, I can remember a girl coming down to me crying one day because um, the principal, who didn't even know her name, had bawled her out first day of school because the socks weren't right. And, you know, she just felt so undervalued. And, you know, it's, it's just the pressures of conformity that, yeah. that come to kids that, that just aren't living in that framework, you know, and it, and it misses who they are and they don't mm. feel understood for who they are. I'm interested in, <clears throat> in the response that hands-on learning had uh, to the, the virus. Uh, i got a really good mate, one of my mentors in Texas, runs an enormous ranch called the Boys, <clears throat> the Boys Ranch there. Basically, they've built a school, they've built a town and, and the hands-on learning style they take to the approach. But, but Dan, my mentor, um, when I was over there with him last year, he said something like, um, an impossible problem is an opportunity in disguise. When we talked recently about the results uh, hands-on learning uh, crews around the countryside got with, with the homeschool teaching, I guess, or the online stuff where... Uh, I was hearing story after story of my God, how do we, <clears throat> how do you teach your own kids? What, why is it that you guys could get such outstanding results with kids wanting to show up, uh, with the kids that show up early for work and want to keep coming? What, what, what are the fundamental things that you do? I mean, the belonging is one that we've absolutely heard of. It's it's kind of not being psychologists and not talking to them. You know, I often have kids. I'd, I'd have the um, the school psychologist bringing kids down because they couldn't get the kids to talk, mm-hmm. you know, and people always worked it like the kids didn't understand what their problem was. I had one teacher who had a daughter and she wasn't getting on at school and it, she'd had a difficulty in a marriage and the kid had just shut down and she said, look, I've tried the psychologist, I've tried this and I've tried that, nothing's worked. Do you think hands-on learning, like hands-on, might work for her? And I said, "Well, let her come down." And by ten o'clock, she'd been working with a group of other girls, and she'd spilled the beans on everything, yep. chatted away freely, and everything, you know, just opened up like Pandora's box. Because yep. I always say, give a kid a hammer, and you'll never shut him up. Yeah. As soon as they start working practically with their hands. Mm-hmm. The pressure goes off them. Not, it's not like they're expected to come up with something. Often these kids don't know what the problem is. Yeah. They, they couldn't identify it if they, you tried to get them identified. They're really just, you know, not at peace inside, <laughs> not yeah. happy. And uh, they're uptight. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. It, it's a, it, the doing is a real secret to sort of, just people coming and getting engaged and, and working in teams, not doing little individual exercises, mm-hmm. but helping one another, communicating with another, supporting one another. And so I always sort of work alongside them. It's not coming and, 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 or sending them off as a team. It's working with them, showing mm-hmm. them how to work, you know, but working alongside of them, giving them confidence along the way. And kids that 
just picked up confidence naturally and they picked it up off other kids and other kids would would help them and support them, you know? Yeah, that peer support thing when you can shape it in the right space and get it moving forward is um, a pretty powerful tool, isn't it? Tell me how you feel about what you've achieved with hands-on learning because it's, um, it's a pretty special thing you've got going on. Well, it, it's it's very satisfying, but I'm never satisfied till it's all over Australia and every school because there's such a need for it. But mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I'm, I'm so proud of the team of people that have carried that on. For, for me now at my age to be able to step back and know that it's in good hands, I fought for that pretty hard for it to be in good hands. It needs to be in the hands of people that have been involved in it who understand yep. it's not just employing people. It's yep. people that need to understand this on the inside and from the inside out who really get it in their DNA, and the people we find that come and work with us really stick around because they really get it, they find purpose and meaning. They're not doing it for love or money. It's pretty low paid because we don't have a good funding source and it's all philanthropic, but they do it. I've had, I've had guys that will sort of let go of more money and let go of their precious motorbike to come and work for hands-on learning mm-hmm. because it's purposeful and meaningful and they love it. And uh, so it's very satisfying, Bernie, to, find, to, to, to see the adults finding purpose, to see the kids finding purpose, to sort of think that you're making a difference. And when I look back on this stuff that I scratched on, or, you know, came across in my early days, it's sort yeah. of fantastic now to see that we've got a way of really starting to deal with this. It just frustrates me that we haven't got that message yet to the level that we get a systemic change. That's that's what I'm really hanging out for. Your greatest frustration then is that the ears are not listening to get this stuff moving fast enough. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, just the fact that you know we've got we've got a problem here where we're trying to we're always talking about education and chasing PISA results and getting better you know results, but mm-hmm. failing to understand that underneath that you've got to be talking person first, kid first, the individual and his needs need to be met. When they're met, when you've got that foundation in the place, you, you, you won't stop kids learning. Mm-hmm. But if you just focus on this, there was one famous Prime Minister that I won't mention who came up with a solution for the Indigenous kids that weren't doing well at uh, one stage in the 90s and uh, in, no, in the 2000s. And this uh, Prime Minister said, well, we'll take away their holidays. We'll make them work during their holidays to get them up to speed. That sort of lack of understanding of what the real problem is, thinking yeah. that it's you just give them more of the same. I've insisted that these kids don't do any formal education in terms of books and reading and stuff at hands-on learning. It's a day yeah. off that. It's a yeah. day to recharge the battery. And, you know, no way will I entertain the fact that this is a place where, where, they, where we, we get trapped into thinking the numeracy and illiteracy comes up in the jobs, yeah. in what we do, in the communication. And that provides the incentive and these kids become red hot at learning and go on. They find their own path. They follow their own nose, you know, and some leave and go and work and get apprenticeships. Some stay on at school and, and become, you know, finish year 12 and, and go on to university. It, it just depends, you know, what the kid wants to do, but it's getting giving the kid that sort of base, yeah. of, that foundation of security and then, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll claim the world. Russell, you said something before um, that um, <clears throat> caught my attention, uh, and I know that we have very similar funding models, you know, backtracking and hands-on learning. Uh, it's almost entirely dependent on 
people's donations and philanthropy. Um, your organisation is very similar. <clears throat> you said something there about philanthropy just get what we're doing and, and the can see the results. What is it? Why do we have philanthropy that puts so much money into alternative programs and different things in this country, but we can't seem to get those two to align uh, with government funding, for example? Yeah, look, that's a good question. All of the people that have been involved with us, philanthropy, from a philanthropic background, they're all really keen to get the government. They want a partnership. Mm. They want the government to understand this stuff and they're just as frustrated as me that the government doesn't understand the importance of this. Um, and it's really, you know, getting that message through, you know, governments get too um, caught up on bureaucratic sort of structures and ways mm. of doing things and, and, and they don't sort of, it's, it's, it's not got the individual at the heart. Will there be a tipping point? What's going to make this stuff change because the numbers are rising I certainly know with our own business when we started we were dealing with 15 and 16-year-olds. Now our referrals are coming through at 10 and 11. We've got kids not even making the transition from primary school to high school, let alone get into a hands-on learning program in high school. To me, it just seems like this massive wave's about to hit the shore. Yeah, that's right, and that's what we've seen too, Bernie. We started off just working in high schools and now I don't know what the percentage is, but a, a, a high percentage of our schools are now primary school because this has moved backwards down the track and and letting these kids disengage in primary schools is really disastrous. So the principals want to get onto it at an early age and keep these kids connected. So we've on exactly the same trend. You've worked for a long time for this and put your heart and soul into it. That is very apparent. How much fuel you got left in the tank and, um, you know, what's the future look like going forward? For me personally, hmm. oh, well, I'm in a, in a very privileged role now just to be sort of uh, the founder and call hmm. upon when needed. I'm still passionate about it and love to do anything that I can do to help, but not having to do it is, is really good too. And just watching the team, I get a great deal of joy. And uh, they call me in to do a bit of, you know, pep talks every now and then, just to encourage them and give them give them that sort of encouragement. I, I love doing that. Love being right there with them, and uh, it's it's terrifically satisfying. This it, this age, Bernie, it's good to have a bit of time to reflect. I'm mm. Reflecting on why I might have been that kid in school, not concentrating. Why didn't I feel like I belonged? And it's an interesting lifelong journey when we start to examine our lives and see, you know, what's on the flip side mm. there and what, what I'm, I'm really interested in the question, what motivated me to do this in the first place? And, you know, we've all got circumstances in our lives that cause us to be disconnected for some reason or other in different ways. And, and now going back and, and finding belonging for myself at a deeper level is, is a really nice challenge to be facing at this time of life, just to be bringing a sense of belonging of all things in my life together. So there's, there's personal growth, there's joy in watching what's happening with hands-on learning. So finding a very satisfying life, Bernie. Uh, Russell, look, it's been fantastic to catch up with you this afternoon. I take my hat off to you. I certainly I look to you for answers. I watched what you've done, that not given up looking out for those kids. Is there something we can learn from young people? Something we can learn from them. Yeah, they're very real. They're very vulnerable. 
they're, they're, they're tremendously resilient. Once just given a chance, kids will surprise you. What really surprised me over and again was how little you had to do mm. to affect a very great change. I had a kid one day, I had him out there killing weeds with insecticide for pump all day, and I said, oh, thanks for doing that, Joel. That was great. You, you, you really stuck at that all day. He said, no, thank you. He said, that's the most fantastic day I've had at school all year. Man, there must be so many kids out there that would uh, love to sit down with you and thank you. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. What you've done is real. You've changed kids' lives. You've helped them set a different direction. If people want to get on behind hands-on learning, what, what's the best thing they can do or to find out a little bit more about it? You guys got a web page? How's that Yeah, work? yeah, we've got a website, Hands-On Learning. But in Hands-On Learning Australia, you'll find that. And they can help in all sorts of capacity. People can give to it. They can get involved in it. If they want to go and work with kids, they can give them, you know, get, get, in, get involved doing that. They can get involved mentoring kids or working with kids in a, in a school context. So, yeah, there are a lot of ways we need support, just communicating the need to other people and uh, a greater awareness so that we, we do finally get a, a tipping point and the government come on and really understand the mental issues that we've got in our society, the, the mental health issues rather that we've got in our society are huge and they're growing. I just read a, a, an article yesterday from the Atlantic magazine in New York, which is just saying it's growing exponentially. And mm -hmm. they don't know really why, but there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxieties in young people at very young ages. You know, what's going wrong in parenting? What's going wrong in society? Why are kids feeling so insecure? We've got a growing problem, Bernie. Um, we're on the path to fix it. Radio, that's the long and short of it for this episode of Everyday Heroes. We're always on the lookout for more Everyday Heroes. If you've got a mate or maybe you consider yourself a bit of a hero, we'd love to hear from you. Send your story our way by emailing inquiries at backtrack.org.au. We'd also love your support. If you rate us, rate us five stars. Then get behind the podcast by subscribing or donating at backtrack.org.au forward slash donate. Every day.